This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Back in the 1970s, a book was written. It became the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s into the 80s. 28 million copies of the late, great planet Earth were purchased. How many of you read that book? Raise your hand. Raise it up high. Don't be ashamed. Okay, very good, very good. A lot of us read that book. Uh, in that book, Hal Lindsey predicted in that one in a follow-up book that uh, the Lord would return uh, basically by December 31st, 1988. 
Um, and of course, we knew from other things that he had written and others that uh, the rapture was going to happen seven years before that. So that meant 1981, when I was in high school, was a really big year. And New Year's Day 1982 was pretty disappointing to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Dr. Lindsay, uh, he spawned a whole genre of eschatological and, and prophecy-oriented books and novels and writings, and frankly, they created quite a bit of confusion within the body of Christ, uh, and especially in the evangelical church, maybe even in our church today, because I've talked with some of you. You know, our confusion, though, is different in some respects from the confusion that was in the churches of Asia Minor to whom Peter was writing this book to. Because men like Cal Lindsay, Tim LaHaye, and others who have written different books on this subject, um, they are brothers in Christ. They believe the gospel. They love Jesus. They believe he died and was buried and rose again. And uh, they believe in the necessity for confessing, repenting sin, and receiving him as Lord and Savior. It's just when it comes to this subject of eschatology, they come with a grid, and as they read certain verses, they can't help but end in a certain place. So for Dr. Lindsay, he came to the parable of the budding of the fig tree, and of course that meant the nation of Israel becoming a, a nation again in 1948, and Jesus said a generation would not pass away. So you add 40 years to 1948, and what do you come up with? 1988. Ergo, Jesus is coming back by the end of 1988. Um, but these are good men. Uh, unlike what was happening in Asia Minor, their confusion was very different because these, in their case, the confusion was the result of false teachers who had come into their churches, this group of churches throughout modern-day Turkey, and they were denying the core truths of the gospel. They were casting doubt on the person and on the deity of Jesus Christ. These false teachers were teaching that he was not going to come back. We could not trust Jesus because he had not come back. He clearly was not God in the flesh. And therefore, you could not trust Jesus. You could not trust his apostles and what they were saying. Certainly do not believe that what Peter and the other apostles were writing to them was the word of God. You can't trust that at all. Second coming itself was a fantasy and a myth, not the Word of God. You can see why this would concern Peter. He knows that he is about to die. He's going to be facing the acts of the Roman executioner. He says in chapter 1, my time is short and I'm writing to you specifically. He wants to build up the faith of these churches to help them to understand that the scriptures are the word of God and that the message of Jesus and the message that the apostles have given them that reflect what Jesus taught them is the word of God divinely inspired and trustworthy. They can build their lives upon it. He wants to establish this uh, situation, this foundational truth in their lives because it was being shaken by these false teachers. He wants to address in this book the teachings of these men who were talking about what would happen next. 
And so he answers this question, especially in chapter 3. In chapter 2, Peter goes off on these false teachers. It's, it's an enjoyable read. You ought to read it. It's not politically correct by any sense of the word by our modern-day standards. And he just goes off on these guys. But in chapter 3, he addresses what they've been saying about what's to come, what's next. In the second half of the chapter, which we'll look at in a few moments, he addresses what's next for us at the individual level. But he begins by talking about our world. What's next for our world? Verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And, and many scholars think this is the second letter on this subject. Like, like Paul, to the church at Corinth, at Corinth he wrote numerous letters, uh, of which we have two. I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter's reminding them of something they have already been taught. They've already learned what's next for our world. So in verses 3 to 10, he reminds them of what he's already been teaching them, of what they should already know. And if you take those verses, you'll see that there's two primary themes that he develops. First, that there will be a growing opposition to the gospel and to the kingdom of God as it spreads throughout the world. In verses 3 to, 10, he, or 3 to 7, he develops this. And then in verses 8 to 10, he speaks about how Jesus, despite this kind of opposition, will inexorably, he will relentlessly carry out his divine plan no matter what the opposition is. In verse 3, he begins to lay out what the, uh, that opposition and how that opposition manifests itself. He starts in verse 3 by talking about scoffing. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Literally, he says, scoffing scoffers will come in the last days. That word scoffing, it's an act of, an act of ridicule. It's words and actions of derision that means to, to make fun of or to mock or to express a contemptible, sneering kind of skepticism. He says the opposition that we will face will start with this very basic attitudinal response of skepticism that is sneering and contemptible. But those who are engaged in this, you see later in the verse, also find in their lives an increase in immorality and ungodliness. So this opposition starts with scoffing, but it also physically looks like immorality and ungodliness. These scoffing scoffers who will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. That sinful desires is a word that means a strong craving for something that is forbidden. A craving and a lust, a controlling lust for things that are inordinate and unnatural and illicit. We see this same word used earlier in chapter 2 when Peter is describing these false teachers. He says these false teachers, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, that's our word epithumia, and despise authority. They're bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Paul uses it in Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish uh, uh, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
the sophisticated arguments, the high-sounding skepticism of these false teachers were really nothing more than a mask for their underlying sin and their desire to worship self. Church, we need to remember this. We need to understand this. When we hear someone casting aspersions, sneering and being skeptical of the Word of God, attacking it and demeaning the Scriptures, we need to look past their words and understand what is the underlying motive of their heart. Peter says, at his most basic understanding of it, it is that internal desire to indulge themselves and to sin and pursue sinful passions. And in order to do that, in order to indulge self and pursue sinful passions, you must demean and discount the Scriptures. You have to try to discredit it in order to rationalize that it's okay to do what you desire to do. This opposition, it takes the form of scoffing, of an increase in immorality and ungodliness. In verses 4 to 6, you see that it takes the form of a myopic materialism. Verse 4 says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now understand, put yourself in the seat of, of what's taking place in these churches. These false teachers, they've come along and they've said, listen, you cannot trust anything that you've heard about Jesus, what the apostles have said. He's obviously not who he said he was because after all, where is he? He promised to return and he hasn't returned. How much more is that a thought in people's minds today? I mean, they were only you know, 30, 40 years removed, we're almost 2,000 years removed. And so they had concluded that since he had not returned, he obviously was not God in the flesh. What they had been told by the apostles was obviously not true. You can't trust the words of, the, of Jesus. You can't trust the words of the apostles. So what can you trust? What you can trust, the teachers are saying, was what you see. The world around us, what has always been what is predictable and knowable and we can put our faith in is the physical world. Science, we might say today, right? The laws that govern our universe and our world, these physical laws. Put your trust in these things, not what is supernatural, not what is being predicted and promised. Put your faith in laws that are predictable, that are physical, that are real, that are seen, that are absolute, and when you do this, it results in something. You realize that this is all there is to life, so get everything out of this life that you possibly can. You should live according to your desires. What you want is what you should get because that is all there is. This world, that's it. It's all there is. And as you go back and you read chapter 2, it's very clear that these false teachers were as materialistic and secular as any atheistic scientist that lives in our world today. And Peter says in verse 5, but they deliberately overlook this fact. They have hardened their hearts. They ignore what is obvious right in front of them, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
It's foolish to doubt God's word. It's foolish to doubt God. You can trust him. You can trust the word of God, Peter says. All you need to do is look to the past. He created everything that we see, everything that the false teachers and the secularists point to as being absolute. Peter says he created these things out of the water. He brought actual dry land. Try that one on for size. How do you do that? You do it through the power of the Word of God. And that power of the Word of God is what not only created this world, it's also what governs this world, it's what sustains us on a daily basis. The Word of God, and this world that's governed by the Word of God, it has already done impossible things, Peter says. And if you need proof of that, if you really think that everything happens just the way it has always happened in the past, verse 6 says, by means of these... The water and the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Everything doesn't happen the same way it's always happened. It may appear that way, but it's not true. Yes, we have laws that govern our normal working world that God has put in place, but church, these laws that we rely upon, they are upheld by the very word and power of God himself. And God at any moment in time, as he desires, can step into our time, our space, and he can supersede any of the natural laws that he so desires. He can do this solely through the power of his word because he is the absolute creator God. And he's done it in the past. He superseded physical laws of creation. He stepped in. He judged the world with a destructive flood of water. Listen, science is a good thing. Science is an important discipline. And it's wonderful to know science and to believe what is scientific. It is good when applied properly but you do not build your life upon science. We do not build our life that way. John Piper has written that we need to guard ourselves against a pseudo-scientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. And I love this next sentence. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty, and if he should choose to raise his voice, the cataclysm will come. Amen. What's next for our world? God is going to grow his kingdom, and we should expect opposition to the gospel to increase. At the individual level, the scoffing, the immorality, but we should also expect it to become more pervasive within the cultures and the civilizations of our worldly system. This opposition will grow, but church, understand that despite the opposition that is given, Jesus will inexorably, he will relentlessly carry out his divine plan. He will not be stopped. His plan is inevitable, and it is not constrained by time. Verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
He quotes from Psalm chapter 90, these beautiful verses in Psalm that speak to the omnipotence and the eternality of God. A day is like a thousand years, the psalmist says, and a day is like a flash in a pan, a minute, an hour, and it's it's gone, and that's what a day is like, a thousand years is like. The psalmist, Peter, is touching on an important principle, that, that principle of compressed time. We've all experienced this, right? Remember when you were a child? How did time move? Slowly, right? Will I ever be able to? Will I ever? And it just seems to move so slow when you're young. Well, now I'm well within my middle age years, and I resonate with many of you who are even older, and how many times do we say, in one way or another, time sure does what? Fly. Yeah, fly. See, that's compressed time. As you get older, time seems shorter and faster. So how, how, must, how would time look like to an eternal God who's always existed, who's actually outside time? Back in May, we went to the Keys for a week of vacation. And uh, Saturday morning, as we packed up to leave after being there throughout the week, I turned to Catherine and we were talking and she goes, we really need to take two-week vacations. (laughs) And I said, I agree. And and why? Because, and then we said, it it just seems like we just got here. Exactly. We just got here, right? You know, why did we feel that way? Now, listen, we had been on other Keys vacations with other people and members of the family where it seemed like one week was a month. (laughs) But in this case, it just seems like we had just gotten there. Why? You know, we were reconnecting with our son who had been away from college all, all semester and and MJ was there, and we, were just, we had a sweet time of our family getting reconnected together again, and it just seemed like it went by like that. Time flew. So imagine what it's like for God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Our perfect triune God, when Jesus ascended after the resurrection, they are reunited after that time of being disconnected and that perfect love, that perfect joy that they have in one another. Uh, Let me tell you something, church. If Jesus doesn't return for another 10,000 years, when God finally turns to Jesus and says, okay, it's time to to wrap this up, I kind of think Jesus is already. It just seems like I got here. (laughs) And then please understand where I'm going with that and don't you know, throw a rock at me for blasphemy, but you get the idea that when you so enjoy one another's company, time just flies. And here's our ascended Lord who has promised to come back. Where's he at? He's having a great, he's with his heavenly father. It it doesn't seem like 2,000 years. It's like that. 2,000 years, 1,000 years is like a day because he's in the presence of his heavenly father. But he will return, his plan is inevitable. It's not constrained by time. And it centers, verse 9 tells us, on him being glorified through the redemption of his elect. Dick Lucas writes, it is for our benefit that God measures time on his time scale rather than on our time scale. 
You see, in verse 9, it reflects this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now listen, this verse has created quite a stir through the centuries and decades. Some come to this verse and teach that in the end, every person who has ever lived and walked the earth will ultimately join God in eternity in heaven because he's not willing that anyone should perish. But this interpretation is absolutely illogical. Peter cannot mean this because he's just said a few verses earlier that the false teachers will spend their eternity separated from God, experiencing his wrath and judgment. So that's, that's not what Peter's saying here. Some, and, and this is a very legitimate interpretation, uh, some believe that this, what this verse is doing is it is giving us insight into the heart of God the dispositional will of God. Like Ezekiel says, God does not have pleasure, draw pleasure in the death of anyone, any of his creation. And so this verse is simply giving to us a picture of God's dispositional will that it expresses his emotions and his love for his creation, but it is not his decretive will, which is absolute and cannot be defied. That's a legitimate interpretation. Many good people hold to it. I don't agree with that. I believe that Peter is actually saying something much more important for us as it relates to our redemption. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who are the you in this verse? Not wishing that any, who are the any should perish, but that all, who are the all should reach repentance? You know, in other words, what is the antecedent to these pronouns, right? Who's he speaking about? Well, as you look in this chapter, to me it seems very clear. You go back to verse 8, it's the beloved. He's speaking to Christians, to the Christians in these churches, the you. And he says, God is not slack concerning promises to you. He's talking to these believers in these churches, and by extension, believers throughout all the ages. So to when I come to this verse, I look at it and say, praise the Lord. Jesus is so in control of everything that is taking place within the kingdom of God and the redemptive plan of God that nothing will happen. The new earth, the new heavens will not ever come into existence until the very last person who God marked out before the foundations of the world experiences repentance and comes into the family of God. But when that person, whoever they may be, reaches repentance... That last person who makes up the all that God has called, Ephesians 1, according to his good pleasure, when that person comes into the kingdom of God, Katie, bar the door because it's about to get hot on earth. And by the way, just so you know, Paul touches on this. In Romans chapter 11, he writes, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers, that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. When Jesus sees that last person come to Christ, his divine redemptive plan concludes with him making all things new. The day of the Lord will come, verse 10 says, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What's next for our world? What should we be anticipating? When you look at it from the big picture, as God's kingdom grows, opposition to that kingdom is going to grow 
However, God's plan, it will go forward. And Jesus will secure the salvation of everyone for whom he has died, and then he will return. That's what's in store for this world. So what? Say it with me. So what? One more time. So what? How does that change your day tomorrow at work? How does this affect you in your marriage or in your family or in your relationships with other people? That's why the second half of this chapter is important. Because Peter turns his attention to not what's next for the world, but what is next for us. Tomorrow, next month, next year, as we live here on this earth. Verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? This is where it gets practical. This is where the rubber meets the road. If all of this is going to happen according to the promises of God, how are we to live and conduct our lives while we wait? And so from these final verses, I think there's two words that I want you to write down or underline in the passage. Two words that in turn give us two very practical gospel applications. Those two words are holiness and hasten. Holiness and hasten. It, the word holiness in verse 11, after he asked the question, what sort of people ought you to be? He says, in lives of holiness and godliness. That word holiness and the concept of holiness is sprinkled throughout the remaining verses to the end of the chapter. The word holiness means to be consecrated, to be set apart for God's glory and for his use. And as you read through the remaining verses, you see this idea. What kind of people ought you to be? People who are holy. People, in verse 14, who are pure before God and at peace with Him and with other people. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Unlike the false teachers who were teaching that this world is all there is, so you might as well live however you want and indulge yourselves fulfilling any sensual desires, Peter says, no. We are called to live a holy life in our, both our conduct and in our character. A holy life that is built upon Christ. And because it's built upon Christ and Christ working in us, changing us from glory to glory through the power of his Holy Spirit, we find ourselves changing in our lives and our character and our conduct, and we find ourselves at peace with God because Christ dwells within us, changing us and at peace with others. This holiness means we're pure before God we're at peace with him and others. It means that we actively put on the mind of Christ. Verse 17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After saying some really neat things about the Apostle Paul, Peter says, you know, Paul has written a lot about these matters of the second coming of Christ, and some of the things that he writes are hard to understand. So we're all in good company if we're kind of scratching our head a little bit, because even Peter had a hard time knowing everything that Paul was talking about. 
But then he points out that what happens is when we're faced with things that we don't completely understand, the temptation of the flesh is to come at it with our rational minds. And when we do this, apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will distort and twist the scriptures. And so he's encouraging us, put on the mind of Christ. And in Romans 12, Paul says what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be holy, and do what? Renew your mind. Put on the mind of Christ. This is how we live holy, consecrated lives before God so that we can be holy, as God says for us to be in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Holiness. How about hasten? Hasten. Verse 12 says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What does it mean? Well, let me phrase, put it like this. I, I can kind of understand pretty easily, you know, wait for the day of the Lord. And I think for many of us, especially in our usage of the English language, waiting for the day of the Lord tends to be something that is like a passive activity where we're patient and we just wait and we suck it up and, and we, you know, we, we, we're there, we're existing. Maybe we, we, we kind of huddled together, but we're just, we're patient, we wait. But this is not what Peter is getting at. He says, waiting for and hastening. That word hasten is important. It comes from a word, a Greek word, sputo, like speed or speedo, which is a picture I don't want it really in my head right now. Right? Hasten, right? It means to cause something to happen or come into being by exercising special effort. So, so connect those dots. Peter is saying, as we wait for the day of the Lord, we are to do everything that we can to hurry it up to, to bring it about as soon as possible, literally, to cause it to happen. How can we do that? I mean, after all, we don't even know. Jesus says no man can know the day and the hour upon which he will return. How do we hasten it? How is this possible? What does he mean here? I think verse 12 is important because verse 12 reminds us of what is the ultimate plan of God. What is that ultimate plan? It is to restore everything to make all things new. And so we are to hasten this restoration of the world, this renewal of the world. This is not a call, by the way, for, for radical militant activity. This is a call for us to bring into our world right now the restoration that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hasten that day by working for his glory by seeking to restore and to, to reconcile our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones with their creator and their Lord. It, it happens when we seek the peace of the city to bring reconciliation and restoration into our world through the power of the gospel. Church, the book of Revelation is full of visions and many of them are hard to understand, but one theme that is repeated throughout the book of Revelation at different points, the vision is of the church and of the people of God at eternity coming before the throne of God. And when you look at those visions <clears throat> and a picture of what will be, those crowds before the throne of God are not tiny crowds. 
It's not like in eternity, God's going to turn to Jesus and say, well, at least we got a few. No, when you look at the visions of Revelation, the size of the crowds falling on their face, worshiping the Lamb and Him who sits upon the throne are as innumerable as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. These crowds are huge. It's a picture of a large crowd. And so in light of Christ's return, Peter's saying we aren't going to hunker down and protect ourselves and withdraw and occasionally you know, throw a gospel hand grenade into the middle of the culture and see what blows up. No, we're to hasten today. What's next for us? It's holy, peaceful lives that seek the peace of our city, that seek the peace of people who do not know Jesus Christ and to bring gospel restoration into their life. It's seeking the peace of our city, of our friends, of our neighbors. It's bringing gospel restoration to all, knowing that God is not slow in his promises as some people count slowness, but will bring everyone to faith who is his child for eternity. What an honor it is for us to be able to participate in a sure and certain work that God says, I will bring this to pass. Take it to the bank. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this promise. Thank you for redeeming us and giving us this opportunity to work with you to see this world restored. Lord, I pray for the one who may be here this morning as they hear this message about what is to come, and some of it is grim as you think about standing before you as judge, not knowing Christ as Savior. Lord, I pray for that individual, as Andrea prayed earlier before the message, that the words of your scripture will find a place in their heart, that you will grow it, that you will bring conviction, and that you will bring salvation and redemption to one who's here even this morning. Lord, help us as a church to be a church that is energized for the future, not hunkered down, withdrawn, sour, pessimistic, dour, defeated, discouraged, despairing Christians that nobody wants to be around, but Lord, Christians who understand how absolutely in control of everything you are, and this frees us to serve and to proclaim the goodness that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's for his glory and for the good of the people of this city that I pray. Amen.